I am so OCD is something that you'll often hear people say. While many of us may have OCD traits, wanting things neat and tidy or having certain rituals, the reality for people with obsessive compulsive disorder is often anything but flippant. For some people with the disorder, OCD can be intensely time-consuming and even debilitating. If you have to turn the switches off, every switch in your house, 500 times before you can leave, then you can see how that would start to impact. This week, we're speaking to Professor Peter Silburn, a neurologist and researcher in QBI's Asia-Pacific Centre for Neuromodulation. Peter's currently leading a clinical trial using a procedure called Deep brain stimulation to treat people with severe OCD. He explains what deep brain stimulation is, the immediate life-changing effects it has on people even while they're in surgery, and what it's like to visualise a single human thought. Deep brain stimulation is a procedure that has been performed for some years now, whereby we can place electrodes in the middle of the human brain while the patient's awake. We use this to treat movement problems, things like stiffness, slowness and tremor, or spasming muscles, and these are what occur in Parkinson's disease and essential tremor and dystonia. But we've learned a lot from stimulating the deep brain of humans. We've learned that we can actually apply this now to other conditions of the human brain. So talk me through the actual procedure. So the patients are totally conscious and aware of the fact that they're getting these electrodes implanted into their brain. The procedure is a neurosurgical procedure in an operating theatre and the aim is to find a very tiny area, usually about a millimetre cubed. And the patient through the initial parts asleep, where we do, if you like, the yucky bits and then they are awakened and talking with us uh, through the procedure so we can actually see what's happening. And the really interesting thing is we can watch what's going on in the human brain when people are thinking. So what does that look like? What it looks like is that we have a large screen, if you like, that's got individual brain cells working and talking with each other. So just like you and I are sitting here, and we're listening to each other's voices, we're listening to the voices of individual brain cells talking. That's incredible. So, you know, 100 billion neurons in the brain and you can actually focus with that specificity down to a single neuron. We do this um, each week, uh, Associate Professor Terry Coyne and myself and a whole team, and we've been doing it now for going on, you know, 20 years but we've been able to refine what we do to really zero in on individual brain cells. So how does deep brain stimulation work for something like Parkinson's disease, for example? That's a great question. Really, people, if they're honest with you, really don't know how it works. And that's why we've got to keep working with, you know, the Queensland Brain Institute where we are to try and work out exactly what's going on to improve that. But we think, if you like, in the brain, in conditions that aren't uh, functioning properly, it's like the signal is not coming out clear, there's a lot of noise, and we can electrically stimulate the neurons 
dampen the noise down and let the signals between the brain regions come through clean. So deep brain stimulation has often been described as a pacemaker for the brain. How accurate is that? Well, it came out of pacemaking for the heart, where you place a device in the chest and a lead goes from the device inside the chest into the heart. And everyone said, oh, it's pacing the heart, which it did. It made it go lub-dub or lub-lub-dub-dub. But in the brain, we have a similar device that we place in the chest and under the skin, so you can't see it, and it dives deeply into where we go. And it really, if you like, we pulse it electrically, we settle the neurons down, and I guess, if you like, we're outpacing the bad guys. And so I guess one of the the important things for patients during the surgery is that they're awake so you can actually see what happens, whether you're in the right spot or not. Talk us through what that moment is like in a surgery. When we're in the surgery, just to put it in perspective, there's three things you know that we have to do. We have to see the target. We have to watch the brain cells working because each part of the brain's got a specific signature, if you like. And then we like to see the patient awake to confirm that we've actually landed where we want to land. The imaging part, we develop a three-dimensional model of the brain and we're improving that here at the QBI as we speak to be really able to get a closer look at the structure because you can't take someone's skull open and find these areas. It's through a very tiny hole in the skull that this electrode goes down. The second thing is to watch the neurons as we were just talking about. But the third thing, probably one of the most satisfying things you'll see and well, certainly in my career, is you'll see people when they're awake talking to you, awful things like an inability to use your hand, big tremors, twisting movements, all of these resistant to drugs and they go away. Instantly. Instantly. So you see people with 20 and 25 years of problems just dissolve in front of your eyes and you can turn it on, make them go away, turn it off and they come back. So when we see that, we know we're really in a good spot. But the big thing is with the hands is watching people look at their hands that they couldn't use or were shaking uncontrollably suddenly stop and they can pick up a cup in the theatre. We've had people playing flutes again. People have played guitars, drinking from things and writing. And to this day, it's an amazing thing. The expression on people's eyes and watching their hands move is really quite moving, to be honest. It must be so rewarding to be able to see those results instantly. It's a privilege, isn't it? In brain diseases, things are tough. That's why there's many, many people researching brain diseases. But for symptom control, to see that, it's extremely rewarding. There's no doubt about that. So deep brain stimulation has been around for some time now, um, and traditionally it's been used for for conditions that are termed the movement disorders, so things like Parkinson's disease and tremor. But now the the new focus, I guess, of your research is heading in another direction. Can you tell us about that? Oh, it's a fascinating direction. You see, what we learnt from the Parkinson's and tremor disorders really opened up our eyes that we could find these areas accurately. But Parkinson's is more than a movement disorder. It has other psychiatric conditions associated with it. 
And we learnt from that and also learnt from a condition called Tourette's, which has wild tics and uncontrollable movements. And when we were able to settle those down, we also noticed that things like anxiety, um, obsession and compulsion with things, we can talk about that, also settled. So it was like a sedgeway, if you like. It was like, well, if that helped, that's fascinating because now we can treat potentially people with psychiatric illness. And that's where our whole team is now progressing down the pathway in a very controlled, metered you know, fashion. People have been operating on psychiatric conditions for many years, actually. But with varying degrees of success. The success was variable. And also in those days, you would burn the area and permanently create a hole there, if you like. But deep brain stimulation or DBS, you place the electrode down there and you don't damage tissue. You can turn it on and off. So that fact that you can reverse things is very exciting. With it, coming back to the question, we're certainly looking at obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, anorexia nervosa, other disorders as well as beyond Tourette's. And that means that we're in this position then that we've learnt from everybody else around the world as well, that if we can help obsessive compulsive disorder, then that opens things up fully to being able to look at what's going on in the middle of someone's brains with their thoughts. So talk us through obsessive compulsive disorder. I guess you hear so often people say things like, oh, I'm totally OCD. But what's the reality for people who actually have the condition? There's a lot of people who um, actually have got OCD traits. They like it neat. They like it ordered. They like it clean. They like it tidy. And they have little habits or little rituals that they do to make them feel good. But it's when those things dominate someone's life, such that you might wash yourself for 10 hours a day, that you won't go outside in case there's certain germs out there, that if you don't touch things a number of times, say seven times or 500 times, that you may create something bad happening in a member of your family. People know they're not quite right, but they spend their lives stuck with that during their waking hours. And it can be quite disabling. You can't work. If you have to turn the switches off, every switch in your house, 500 times before you can leave, then you can see how that would start to impact. We had a young woman who really had trouble with order and neatness and symmetry. And what she would do had four young children, sorry, three young children under the age of, you know, seven and she had to get them out of the house every day to school but if their shoelaces weren't exactly the same length everybody had to take their shoes off and start again and you can imagine when you got a toddler wanting to take off <laughs> it just wasn't happening but those sorts of things are kind of at that level but the really disabling thing is when you're spending the whole day washing yourself or the whole day going checking on things so people with obsessive compulsive disorder have a high deal of uncertainty and anxiety. Whereas a lot of us, and there's certainly a lot in, in the medical profession, people who have, thank goodness, I guess, have got to have it just right. And the same in science. People just got to know that experiment's right. They've got to control everything. They don't like so much uncertainty. How is OCD normally treated? With OCD treatment, it's not just a surgical 
problem. There's many medications that are used. And in fact, the people that we uh, operate on uh, in the trial that we're doing now have had issues with you know, minimal or modest improvement with psychological therapies, which are imperative to undergo. It's called cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, as well as multiple drugs. And so when people haven't been able to settle or their lives are still dominated on a daily basis by, you know, the obsessive thoughts or impulses and thoughts that come into their head, where do they come from? And compulsions, you have to go through and do rituals to settle those thoughts creating anxiety. When that happens and the drugs don't work and the cognitive behavioural therapy doesn't work, then that's when really... Uh, deep brain stimulation comes into the picture. So tell us a little bit more about the trial that you're currently running. Yeah, our trial, really we modelled a lot of it off on a Dutch group in um, the Amsterdam Medical Centre at the university there. But we kind of stepped it up a level, I believe, in that we took people who the drug didn't help or cognitive behavioural therapy didn't help And we looked at their results, which showed that once you do the DBS, the psychological therapies then were able to be very successful in in returning people to a reasonably normal life. So we thought, right, how did that happen? And we saw some of the images of the brain and how the brain functions. But because we're here at the QBI with people who are very good at looking at how brain cells talk to each other, we thought, well, we should watch and see what an abnormal thought looks like. What a thought coming through, where did that come from? People know that their thoughts that intrude in can be very odd. Like they know that if I don't turn the switch off 10 times with my left hand and 12 with my right or wash the whole house three times, they know that they're not going to create a war in Africa, which is some unusual things. So we know that that's an abnormal thought. And that's what we're trying to hunt, to really work this out. How can we actually settle this down in many other ways? What would you say to people who are interested in finding out more about the study? I think the thing is to contact basically the Queensland Brain Institute. You can do that through what's called the APCN. The APCN is the Asia-Pacific Centre for Neuromodulation, which is based here. And really what we've done is brought together a lot of... uh, high-level scientists uh, with clinicians like myself and Terry and many others, the psychologists, psychiatrists and nurses, signal analysis, into really defining what we're doing as closely as we can at the highest level and learning from that such that we can then go and apply it to other centres. The QBI is where it's really happening and um, you know we're very pleased with how it's going. Our results thus far are particularly encouraging. That was Professor Peter Silburn, a doctor and brain researcher, talking about obsessive compulsive disorder and deep brain stimulation. If you want to know more about OCD or deep brain stimulation, visit the QBI website, qbi.uq.edu.au. That's all for today's episode. I'm Donna Liu, and our podcast was produced by Jessica McGaw. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends, give us a review on iTunes, or let us know what you think on Facebook or Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thank you.